and I'm inspired by this mother of you would go ahead and come help me distribute these. And if you want to, you give um, a little more life to Father Tom with that gift. That'd be super cool. Funny little thing of funny little thing of late night cigar and a glass of whiskey in the library.
then why do I need to know him any better? I can just do what he says in the Bible, be nice to people, and then get to be reunited. Reunited in a sense with you after I die. That is the concept. And so I've really spent my life quietly asking this question. Why does it matter what he says? But if you don't understand what he's like, you'll never understand what you're supposed to be like. Until I see his image, I won't understand what my image is supposed to be. Because we were created in his image. And as as is the case, his image is supposed to be showcased to us always. So what does it mean for me? The path of trust is the journey of surrender. The path of trust is the journey of surrender. So I'd like to begin with a simple question. Does God surrender? Let's take a step further as if that's not a challenging enough question. And let's use a word that is loaded with implication and baggage. Does God submit? Because we're engaged in a life and a journey of surrender and of submitting ourselves. And much like uh, I mentioned a moment ago, as soon as you read read this phrase, everything I have is yours, it sounds like something, and it is something that we regularly say to God. Everything I have is yours. I surrender and I lay everything down. You can't say this phrase without the implication of surrender and submission. Would everybody agree? Yet God says it to us. A central and inherent aspect of this other-centered love that God has invited us to be awakened into is, excuse me, invited us to be awakened to is the beautiful thing of mutual submission. Submission can be a beautiful word of relationship or a terrifying word of power and control. Our culture, terrifying word of power and control. Wives, submit to your husbands. What does that say? He has to do whatever I say. I have to make every decision because I'm the head. Even if she's smarter, I'm still the head. Any consequential advice? So let me ask you a question. Does it make any sense whatsoever that in a marriage where the wife is a is an investment banker, that she's not allowed to give her opinion about how they're going to invest their life savings, that she's to submit it to her husband, who's done construction his whole life and doesn't know how to balance a checkbook. Right? In fact, then you get to church and it gets really weird. Submit. Why? Because I'm the pastor. You got to submit. You gotta do whatever I say. Let me just suggest to you that is a humanistic twisting of what it means to submit. Submission in its original design is something that begins with God. We reflect his image. So if we're called to submit in reflection of his image, wouldn't he be the God that first demonstrates how to do it? It is 
relational. I would like to suggest that God is relational, and therefore it requires that you submit to the other-centered and self-giving love that real relationship requires. And that's where I would uh, make the initial remark. I would like to suggest that God is relational. Therefore, it requires that he submit to the other-centered and self-giving love that real relationship requires. Before anybody spins out of control, let's start with something we all believe and understand. The Trinity is something very commonly agreed upon and understood. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one. This theology is called, called parakoresis. This was first used by Maximus the Confessor in around 60, uh, 680 AD, excuse me, and we find it in language as early um, as 389 AD by Saint Gregory uh, the Theologian. In the Greek, this word means simply to make room for. Perichoresis, or the idea of the Trinity, means to make room for. Richard Rohr speaks about this concept of perichoresis in his wonderful book, The Divine Goodness. The divine goodness of the Trinity is one of mutuality where no person of the Trinity is absorbed, but every person within this wonderful Trinity yields to one another as elements of that personhood are made known. Does God get, did God get smaller while Jesus was on the earth? So we talk about how there are times when we can feel the Father's presence, when God the Father comes in the room, or when the Holy Spirit comes in the room. Does God have to get smaller in, other, in order for that to happen? Or if that happens, does he absorb the other beings? Or is this this mutual dance of submission where they are truly free and one? I would like to suggest that there's no other way the Trinity makes sense unless they are completely free and one, yet none absorbing the other, but functioning in a dance of relationship, respect, and honor by which they bend to allow one another to showcase that element of the nature. And everybody can kind of agree on that. But I think we would all agree in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we'll come to the second half and make it all the three points. This is the beautiful space where we are invited into this dance of the Spirit. Because perichoresis is to make room for. So in some instances, doesn't the Father make room for Jesus to demonstrate himself as Lord? In other instances, doesn't Jesus make room for the Holy Spirit to make himself known as the one who leads us into all truth. But at any point, does that mean that the other is less important? I have a word for what I just described. Submitting. Submitting is making room for. Submitting is the dance of surrender, whereby the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit dance together, and, and you can see it's, it's literally a dance. And I don't know if you've ever danced with anybody, because, but at various moments in various dances, either partner might be leading. Now, you don't want to see any dancing because you would think that what would be leading is a seizure. But I assure you that, that when you really see it done well, there is this respect and 
submission that happens. So what does this have to do with us or with God submitting? Well, simply put, we are part of this divine dance. And in order for us to be part, it requires that God surrender to us. Think about your life. How many times has God whispered to you, let me do this because you made so many dumb decisions. I think it would be better off for all of us if I just handled it and take over. How many times has God said that to you? Never. Zero. Doesn't mean I don't ever do it, but there are times where I'm like, God, I know I'm wrong when I make bad decisions. Please take over. But he doesn't. Why? Because he's God. is for us to process, He chooses to climb into my life, my past, my journey, and craft something beautiful out of this partnership. Sometimes He gets to craft something out of what He really wanted from me. Other times He doesn't have as much to work with. But as no, at no time does He stop crafting and shaping things. When I get it wrong, He climbs inside it and crafts and shapes something beautiful. And when I get it right, he climbs inside of it and crafts and shapes something beautiful. So let's look at the scripture before anybody starts sharpening their stones. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to read this from the Passion Translation, which is also in your sheet. So we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. For we are His lovers who have been called to fulfill His divine purpose. So here's the kicker about this verse. I was always taught that what this verse means is that God has a perfect plan, and until I get inside of that perfect plan, I'm outside of His perfect plan, and in some way I'm going to miss everything He has for me. He can't use me. He can't work. Because I'm outside. Have you ever heard anything quite like that before? Maybe you're not a sinner. But you're just not in this perfect plan. So things aren't going to go right. And in some way, we actually teach that our decision and our, our life has the ability to stop the love and power of God. to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound unto every good work. So, let me ask you a question. If you need grace, does that mean that you need to go higher? Yes. So, if he's able to, in all sufficiency, make grace abound towards us, that every good work may have its work, doesn't that at least imply that it doesn't matter what you're doing, that God is still able to do exactly what He wants to do. I know this messes with us, but it's just the truth. So think about it this way. Even our idea of Romans 8, 28, I think we've totally missed the point of that. What I was always taught is that every uh, um, that everything works together for the good when I'm doing what God wants me to do. 
when I'm not sinning, when I'm listening to Christian music all the time, as soon as I put on Bruno Mars, the spirit flees the vehicle. Right? Stop. Wait a minute. Take my cup. Put some Welch's in it. Because what we think that means is that as soon as something happens, that it's we're we're lost, we're spinning out of control, and God's like, "Well, you're done, you're out of there." Is that how any of you parents are with your children? Even if you give them a hundred dollars and they blow it, if they go to if they go to the gas station and they spend it on the dumbest stuff possible, they buy lottery tickets and Tic Tacs, and and um, you know, and you at that point you you write them off. You certainly don't write them off, and you certainly don't cut them off from your love. So let me ask you a question. Are you better than him? We've got some really good parents in the room. So if there's anybody alive in the universe that could be a better parent, I'm sure they're in this room. But I would still like to suggest that we're not. So let's think about this. Both of these passages, both 2 Corinthians 9.8 and Romans 8.28, are, have been used to tell us that if we make perfect decisions, because we have to sin, we have to make perfect decisions because God wants to bless us. And if we mess up, we're outside of his purpose and plan for our life. The issue with this theology is that it doesn't diminish our choices, it diminishes him. It doesn't diminish, it doesn't, it's not that it's like, well, your choice is this. It actually makes our choice bigger than it is and makes him smaller. And the reality of it is, everything works together for good. The point of that passage is not when you make the right decision. The point of that passage is when you make the wrong one. Let me just read this to you again. And we know that all things work together for the good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Guess what that's supposed to be? That's the fail-safe for when you screw up. All things work together for good. If everything was perfect and already working for good, you wouldn't ha- you wouldn't have to be reassured that it will all work out for good. When everybody's life is perfect, they've got millions of dollars in the bank and no problem. Do you have to walk up to them and say, "Hey, it's okay. Everything's going to be just fine. Don't worry." No, they have no reason to worry. So this is a reassurance. This is a, this is the failsafe for when you make a mistake, for when we get it wrong that his love is still good enough to deal with us. Because all things work together for good. If we love and are called according to his purpose. And I'm not talking about like where you give up on God and become an atheist. Now, I would honestly argue that he's there then. However, what I'm talking about is where good-hearted, well-intended people It attacks the depth and the power of His love to save us, even when we miss the mark. Do we realize that the only passage in the Bible that suggests God cannot look on sin is in Habakkuk, and we actually miss the rest of the verse? The rest of the verse, it does start by saying, God, you can't look on sin. Because how many people have been told that God can't look upon sin? You can put your hand up. Right? Everybody. Okay, good. Make sure we're all drawing together. Um, 
And so the only time that's mentioned in the Bible is in Habakkuk. And do you realize what the rest of the passage says? What the rest of the passage actually says is, God, you're so pure, you can't even look on sin. So then why do you? That's what it says. God, you're so pure that you can't, you're, you can't even see. And this is where you've got, it's a poetic phrase. See, we need to stop reading the Bible like a history book and start reading it like a poem. We'd be better off. Because there's symbo- <clears throat> symbology and phrasing in there. Excuse me. And what you find in this passage is that it's actually this symbol where he's saying, God, you can't even see things in its messed up form. It's not that he can't look on sin. Do you think your sin has the ability to come up with sight? How powerful is your sin? You have some powerful ACDC. That's one strong cocktail. I mean, like first glass of wine, God's like, I can see you. Second glass, he's like, where'd you go? Seriously? I mean, where do, how does this work? Is it like wine is okay and beer makes a cloaking device for you? God has lost it. You've went in stealth mode. Seriously? That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, God, even in any circumstance, His vision is so pure that He can't see it in any less than His hopeful completion of His intent. And so what Habakkuk says is, God, you can't even see stuff messed up, so why do you keep looking at us? But you do. We've got to break this thing from our mind that as soon as I throw a four-letter word, God all of a sudden is ticked off at me. Right? I'm serious. I mean, what's the level? What is it that, you know, that's the trigger, and now all of a sudden, I'm gone. God can't see me. He's not going to even look at me. There is nowhere you can go or decision you can make that God cannot shape into his own. The all things work together is the failsafe for when we miss it. Because even then, he is there. His love doesn't protect me from the consequences of my choices, but it also doesn't abandon me to them. His love does not protect you from the consequences of your bad decisions, but it also doesn't abandon you to those consequences alone. Let me ask you a really dumb question. Have you ever seen in the Bible, it actually says this a couple times, but have you ever read that passage about all the things that can't keep you from the love of God when it says angels and darkness and principalities and powers? Do you realize that what it actually says is anything that's created? this into words that make sense. Let's unprove angels. Nothing that's created can keep you from love. Let me ask you, what's the only thing that wasn't created? Hell. Right? I mean, I'm, 
The only thing that wasn't created is God. He is the creator. So here's what he actually says. Nothing that has been created can keep you from my love. And the only thing that wasn't created is me. And then he goes on to tell us, and I am love. Nothing I've made is strong enough to keep you from my love. And in the midst of that, as if there is a a question of then what could keep me, he says nothing because the only thing that could be is me and I am love. He can't separate love from who he is, so he even defines that even in that we can't be separate from his love. That's the way this works. That's the point. So back to our point. What if submitting is not being a doormat to somebody else's desires and demands? but rather a respectful substantial agreement between persons. Could it be that this is where authority, authenticity, and the depths of this relationship originate? Would it not require such submission for the God of all the universe to put on frailty and humanity and carry that incarnation all the way through rejection, rage, and accusation all the way to the cross? Can you find any other that can define the God of the universe putting on skin and giving us life and submitting to us. Does it require a God to surrender in the same way so that we, as agents of free will, can experience His love, His grace, and even the authority of His power? Created in His image, we then have the opportunity to step into a partnership, a relationship, a community of people, this countercultural society called the Kingdom of God, where we walk alongside people who, like us, are on a journey of mystery. Because real surrender requires the presence of mystery. Real surrender requires the presence of mystery. As soon as what you believe loses mystery, it empowers you to infringe it and impose it upon others. When Nazi Germany used the Bible to endorse the execution of Jews, they did it with an absolutism that left no room for mystery. See, as soon as we think we have it all, there's no mystery to it. Then we get to, we've got it. We've gotten hold of it. And now we have power and we can impose it upon others. Mystery is the thing that's been missing from the Western American church for years. Because we say it's not important to our religion. But we're not smart enough to recognize that what we're part of is a mystery religion. So mystery is a core part of us. In fact, I would venture to suggest to you that mystery is not really a Christian virtue. In your relationship with him, the unknown is just as vital as what he's making known. And in this, we surrender to the walk of the Spirit. God, the God of the universe, the cosmic 
that holds all things together and the spirit that leads us in all truth or into all truth are constantly making all that they have and all that they are available to us. The challenge for us is the thought that we must earn it to keep it. I would like to suggest that the life-changing, life-giving fullness found in God is not something we can gain access to, but something that has always been there. It is accessed not by adherence to rules, but by awareness. And oftentimes the battles we fight are due to the fact that we still think this every his everything, excuse me, can be hindered by my loyalty and adherence. And we don't understand that what actually gains us access to it is the surrender and awareness. I had a conversation uh, the other night. Um, Friday night with um, uh, a gentleman that has been playing drums with for a number of years. He's really just a super good guy. He actually uh, owned a business, a, a really, really successful marketing business, and um, just stepped away as CEO of that to take the VP of communications job for Colt. And so he's the VP of communications and marketing and finance or something like that for Colt. So I don't know what that means, but you know, anytime there's initials on your job, it's probably means it's good. Um, and, um, and so he, um, we were talking, and, and um, somehow that we, we got to the, con- uh, the, the, the idea of, I think it's because he told me if he ever went back to school, he wanted to study theology. And I said, well, that's not bad. Or if he's not going to come back, that's a way to get into it. And so as we were discussing it, he said that he considered himself um, somewhere between an agnostic and an atheist. And um, he said, probably closer to agnostic. I kind of believe there's something out there. But he, he said, I'm a very fact-oriented guy. Um, I'm a very reason-oriented guy. I need to kind of understand it. And he said, so I, I, I would probably, he said, were it not for the fact that deep down I know there's something out there, I would say I'm an atheist. In, he said, in my mind, I'm an atheist. And in my heart, I'm an agnostic. Okay? And, uh, and I said, okay. And um, it's funny, it's always funny to me because when you tell, I guess when you tell a pastor that you might be an atheist, you're still supposed to be like, I'm not. I don't, apparently I didn't read that part of the manual. Because um, I just kind of go, okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I, I, am I supposed to write in, like, start speaking in <laughs> You know, I don't know. So I was like, I plead the blood in Jesus' name. I plead the blood atheism. You're under my feet. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You know. So I just, I just looked at him. I said, okay. And uh, and he starts telling me, and, and I'm, I'm just like, Father, this is incredible. He said, Yeah, you know, the weird thing is, I've always wanted to kind of understand, and I feel like I still struggle with that. But he said, I, I've known my whole life that there's something out there. And I know when I'm on the path, and I know when I'm not. And he said, my entire life, I've, I've felt like that there's this other um, element or force. But he said, I can tell when it's from him. He said, as if he's in the core, I can tell that there's something that I'm supposed to do or not supposed to do. Or he said, even this when I submitted this resume to the Colts, he said, I knew when I filled it out, they were going to stop hiring. It was almost like I just set myself up. And he's like, this is what it's supposed to happen next. And he said, I've made bad decisions and, and can feel that internally. And I said, that's really interesting. He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you just describe faith. 
had just finished telling me that what he lacked was faith. Literally, that was his words. He said, I want to believe because I think there's something out there I just don't have faith. And he described to me faith. And I told Tosh that night on the way home, or that morning, I should say, uh, I said, you know, if that's what it looked like to me, I said, what's that? And he said, this guy that is a self-professed agnostic or maybe even atheist described a better understanding of the journey of faith and being led by the Spirit than most Christians I know. He's never prayed a simple prayer, and he's to a large degree doubts just takes his name. But there's something in his heart that's leading him. And if you don't think that's God, then you don't belong in the same club. And if you think I'm sort of a loosey-goosey with who God is, then, then God's a lot smaller to you than he is to me. Because I assure you, he spoke about faith and about the path of walking with the Lord in clearer language than people who have been going to church and tithing for 20 years. And that is the game. Now, if you're going to ask me, so are you saying he's going to heaven? I really don't know. I really don't know. I have no idea. And it's really not my business. It's just not my business. But I can tell you this, he knows God. very well. And I looked at him and said, you know, here's the good thing about, about doubt and being maybe considering being an atheist. I said, even when you don't believe in him, you believe in yourself. Just the good thing about that. So, let's look at the text of the morning. Um, Luke, <clears throat> in his gospel, tells this incredible story that is probably one of the most shocking and powerful stories we find in all of the Gospels. And we're, I'm just going to kind of cherry pick here and give you the whole um, story from the NIV. Um, and so you're welcome to, to read that on your own time. But I'm going to paraphrase it for the moment. Um, you know the story that this, this father has two sons, his younger son tells his father that he wants his inheritance early, takes his inheritance, leaves, goes and does his own thing. Um, and there's a, another older brother that stays there and continues to work. The younger son, after everything kind of falls apart and he crashes and burns, as we often do, um, decides, you know what, I'm going to go back home. And he starts to fantasize what that's going to look like and prepares excuses so that he can come back to the father. And if you'll look with me, um, and I apologize, I, I didn't put verses on this, but, but towards the end of this section of verses, um, Look at what the father says, because this is, is something that's going to be key for us. It's in bold on your sheet. This is what the father said to the older brother. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. That's where we're going to start. Remember, we're talking about transaction or trust. Can you read out? The story starts with a concept that is possibly one of the most shocking things Jesus could describe. The younger son tells the father, I want my inheritance now. In first century Jewish culture, this was the most offensive thing you could say to your father. 
the inheritance was given when the father died, and it would be like saying, Dad, I only want your money, and I wish you were dead. Culturally, that's the weight of what just happened in this story. In this culture, the lack of respect for the father was absolutely unheard of. The other thing is that the inheritance was divided first to the older brother, then to the younger brother. So if one takes his money early, it means the older brother gets left in the end. So Jesus tells this story and frames it in language that is absolutely shocking to the people that heard it. Nobody could imagine that any son would ever do this to their father in this culture because of the, the patriarchal respect culture that they had. There are two stories we see here. At times, we play both parts in the story. The younger son crashes and burns, and during it, he needs to go home to beg for forgiveness. And as he does this, he rehearses a speech that says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is vitally uh, important for us to understand within the story. Much like the son, we all have a story we are telling ourselves about our worth. We have a tape that plays in our head, a narrative or a script we tell ourselves about our story and about who we are. What tends to happen is that our life then follows the script of who we are saying we are. Whether that script is going to be I'm smart enough, spiritual enough, thin enough, good looking enough, or on the other hand, a bloated ego that says how great we are and how wonderful we are and how we're everything to everybody. That is a story that we tell ourselves. In psychology, they call this the script of our life. Because the story you tell yourself ends up becoming the script or the narrative that you live out. If you tell yourself all the time you're not good enough, it's going to impact your decisions and what you choose to be able to do. If you tell yourself all the time that you've been rejected and you're always going to be rejected, it's going to impact the decisions you make. It becomes a script for you. So you see the son is rehearsing this speech that he took with the father. And in that speech, he begins to tell the story of who he says he is, where he says, I'm not worthy to be your son. The son returns, and before he can even get through his story, the father says, get a robe and a ring. The father actually interrupts his son giving his rehearsed speech. The son gets ready. He's, I mean, he's worked it up. He's got this whole speech in his head. He's got a spiel. He's got it worked out. He doesn't even, I, I don't know if he had key parts. I don't know what he, if he had written it on hand like you do when you're cheating on a test. I have no idea. But he had rehearsed the story, and before he can even get through it, the father runs to him and cries back at the other servants and says, get a ring and a robe. You see, before he can get through his script, the father says, I have a different story. I have a different narrative about me. My son was lost and is now found. My beloved, that has always been my beloved, is now home. That's the story that the father gives. My beloved, that never stopped being my beloved, is now back in town. Notice that the father says the son was lost from the father, but that was the only or that was only from the son's perspective, because the son was never lost to the father. 
he's describing from the son's perspective, my son was lost and now he's found. It, he was not saying that the father ever lost the son, but only that the son was lost to the father. Because he was always with him. The father was always with him. He could not be lost of the father. He could not be loved any less than the father. He could not be any less beloved of the father or any more beloved of the father. Because the identity of the son as beloved doesn't rely on who the son is, but who the father is. I'm going to say that again. The identity of the son as beloved doesn't rely on who the son is, but who the father is. So that's why even when the son abandoned the father, the father never abandoned the son, and the son's identity was never diminished. Because your identity as beloved is not contingent upon your actions, but on his. It's not contingent upon what you say about yourself, but what he says about you. It's not contingent upon your faithfulness, but his. Your goodness, but his. Your righteousness, but his. The younger son at this moment has a decision to make. Do I trust my father's version of my story or do I trust my version of my story? Which version of the story does he choose to paint? This is our life. Which version of the story do we choose to accept? And I would like to suggest to you that this is not a one-time decision. Some days it's a moment-by-moment decision. I like to tell you that it's a, it's, you know, maybe even day by day. Like you get up in the morning and you say, no, I've got the Father's story today. Well, then guess what happens? You take two steps into your bedroom and life happens. So continually, we have the option to choose which narrative we're going to trust. Are you going to trust what I say about myself or what he says about me? Because they are in direct opposition to one another. Now, the older son finds this celebration, and he is furiously perplexed. And as he speaks to the father, it reveals his bitterness. He says, you never even gave me a goat so I could have a party with my friends. The goat that he speaks of, this is very telling. First of all, this is telling because when you talk about this, the the idea of the goat is that it is a very meager offering. It's a very meager animal with minimal meat. So he's actually talking about, you didn't even give me the smallest thing with a little bit of meat so I could have a party with my friends. So even, even the language he uses is important. And the thing that I think is really interesting about this is, number one, I think this speaks so much to the church. So much to the church. And this may not make any sense to you, but I'm just going to feel better for having said it, because we have a really, really bad idea of what it means to party. celebration of the Father. Most of us walk around like there's something stuffed somewhere it shouldn't be. And we have this thought that 
is very much a politics that not that we shouldn't have, not that we shouldn't have, but it better be a Christian thing. I mean, I'm able to watch like Mark Lowry because he sees what the gays are doing to the Christian community. So when we're talking about our, and we think about even, do we realize, I mean, this is why, and God bless it, I love it, it's fine, but this is why, like, Christian rap is horrible. I'm sorry, but for the most part, like, some Christian music is just bad. Why? Because it, if it, because it is like our version of trying to have this weird fun that's not really fun. And I'm not saying that bad makes it fun. I'm not saying that you don't have to go like full on Britney. I guess Britney, I mean, Britney Spears. Like, I'm not saying you have to, you know, I'm not saying it has to be, you know, Janet Jackson. I'm not suggesting it has to be, that's not my point. But my idea is, even when you look at the son who represents the church, even his version of a party kind of stinks. A goat?
somebody really, really, really angry or bitter or hurt in somebody. If they, they can't answer, they won't. I've talked with people before. I've talked to those people before, and they, they won't use the name. They'll just say, my ex. When you can't say somebody's name, you've got a problem. And the older brother can't even reference the younger brother's name. Kids are saying that five, six, seven years old. says in this premise, I have worked all these years for you. And he begins to tell us the story he's telling himself. The story he's telling himself is a narrative about his service. The younger brother's story is, I'm not worthy. The older brother's story is, I am your son because of all the things I've done and all these years that I've been faithful and worked hard. So the older brother's story is the opposite of the younger brother's. The younger brother's story is, I'm not worthy. The older brother's story is, I'm only worthy because of all that I've done. I've worked hard. I've followed the rules. I've served. I've been faithful. And because of that, I'm worthy. And that's not the father's narrative either. That's not the father's story either. How many times have we seen this? I've been in church my whole life. I've taught Sunday school. I've been a good Christian. I've always done the right thing and followed the rules and checked all the boxes. Doesn't that get me something? His story is, I'm worthy because of all that I've all of I have done. I am worthy because of all I've done. The younger is, I'm not worthy because of what I've done. So this defines God the Father. In this passage, we learn how the Father sees us and the words he, Jesus uses to define how the Father says, sees us. Do you realize this is one of the only times in the entire Gospels that Jesus gives a story that he specifically talks about the Father and us as he's created. So this is the clearest picture that Jesus gives of who God is. That's a big deal. So in this incredible story, Jesus uses these words to define how the Father sees us or what his story about us is. His story about us is this. I am with you always and everything I have is yours. This should be the starting point for us as we view God. This should be the starting point for those who don't believe in God at all, or those who have believed forever. So this brings us back to the point of transaction or trust. Transactionalism is the idea that someone has done something for you, namely God, and here is what you have to do for God in order for you to make whatever God has done for you be effective. Transactionalism is not a theology. Transactionalism is a principle, but it does apply to our Christian life. Transactionalism states that God has done something for you, and here is what you have to do for God in order to make whatever God has done for you effective. For me,
beginning of us, the basis of our faith is founded upon the concept that God sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive our sins. So then here's what we have to do. We have to believe and live in a certain way. And if we do that, then what Jesus did on the cross will be effective for us. Jesus did this. So now I have to do this in order to get that. Sound like anybody's faith background? So the foundation becomes transactional in that here is what Jesus did for us, and here is what we have to do in order to get it. How many times have you been told, um, if you pray for somebody and they don't get healed or when you ask for God to do something and it doesn't work, that the reason is because of sin? How many times when things go wrong is the first thing that you do start asking, start repenting and asking God, okay, stop hurting and sickening your heart that you didn't know was there? That is transactional. Your sin cannot prevent God from doing anything. That is a tool for Calvinist world. But it's just that. Because if your sin can prevent God from healing somebody who needs to heal, then you think your sin's a lot more powerful than God. So the whole thing becomes, and this is how we teach people in faith, okay, tell me what I have to do. And even when people tell us, no, 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 it's not by works, you just need to believe. The believe always tends to be described in verbs, doesn't it? How many times have you had people, no, 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 it's not by works, you just have to believe. Well, what does that mean? And then they just, they start to describe actions. You have to pray so much and read so much and take these words out of your language and put these words in your language. You have to stop cussing and start speaking Christianese. And you have to um, stop watching news shows and start watching CBN. And you have to cancel uh, uh, HBO and pick up the C. And, you know, whatever it is that are scripted, but there is a script that we've been told we have to do to get access. And the question then becomes, have I done enough? And then each system of belief has had to establish a criteria to make sure that the transaction has taken place. I'll say that again, this is a weird thought. Then what happens is, following that, we have to establish criteria, each system of belief, uh, 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 whether you be Lutheran, whether you be Presbyterian, whether you be Pentecostal, whether you be Baptist, we have to each establish a criteria that determines whether you have fulfilled the tra- transaction of that belief. If I say the term filled with the Spirit to a non-tongue-speaking Baptist, that means something entirely different than a tongue-talking charismatic. Sorry, but I have met more non-tongue-talking, filled with the Spirit of God people than I probably have who could go on and shamanama till the cows came home. Who untied my bow tie, who stole my Honda, is not the closest for whether the Spirit's in you. 
but we come up with criteria. And even when this all begins to happen, this transactionalism takes place, and at a cellular level, we pick up a message that says, if you don't pray enough, study enough, preach enough, you are bad, and if you would just do these things, life would be better. That's what happens. That's why as soon as life gets really hard, we go into emergency fasting mode. We go into emergency repentance mode. We go into emergency read my Bible more mode. We go into emergency whatever mode. Why? Because we we have a foundation of transactionalism. And you can't have a foundation of transactionalism and walk in the journey of Christ. This is why we have seen it as a destination in our walk with him and not a journey. Because the journey is a journey of trust whereby he saves us by his Holy Spirit. The destination is transactionalism that I check all these boxes and now I get this. I've checked the boxes so now I'm good. Jesus tells us another story about the father. He says, there's nothing that can separate you from me and my love for you. The scripture actually says, Nothing has been created which can separate us, separate you from his love. So guess what? If God is the only thing that hasn't been created, he is the only thing that can separate you from his love, and he is love. So you can't separate him from his love either. So the question is, if you will stay in a transactional life, will you engage in trust? Will you engage in the journey of trust that embraces what he says about you rather than the story you've told yourself? The entire gospel actually becomes an announcement of who you are. I want to say that again, because we so mess up what the gospel does. The gospel message is the message of who you are. Jesus came to tell you who you are. I came that you might have what? Life and life more abundant. Who you are is the good news. to be the good news. Who you are is the good news. Do you realize that this was so realized by Paul that he spent the first four chapters of the book of Ephesians just telling the church in Ephesus who they are before he ever starts talking to them about what they were supposed to do? Four chapters he spends just telling them who they are, who they are, who they are. Why? Because we have a script that we follow and it's based on I did this and so now I get this. And I prayed this much, and so now I'm right with God. And I did this wrong, and so now, look, you it is impossible if you know who you are, even in the presence of your mistakes, to be defeated. How many times have we allowed an error to cause us to feel defeated? We messed up, we didn't operate in faith, we didn't speak right, we got mad, we lost our temper, we, we felt beat down, whatever it is. So then as a result of that, we felt like we lost. That is a dualistic thinking that means you win or you lose. The challenge is the whole journey is going to feel like losing because you're surrendering. Dying, when in our mind, winning feels like success. Don't you think that dying is 
is going to feel contrary to our normal humanity. So even in your losing, you win. Even in your, uh, even in the laying down, even in the defeat, there is a journey. There's a nuance that he's teaching you where we get to choose which script are we going to follow? What story are we going to believe? And in the, as soon as we become like the prodigal son that leaves and blows the inheritance, we start telling ourselves, I'm not worthy. We make a mistake. That's, I'm not worthy. I didn't come to prayer. I'm not worthy. I missed two services in a row. I'm not worthy. I forgot to read my Bible yesterday. I'm not worthy. Whatever it is, and the Father is standing over you saying, the whole time since you were born and for the rest of eternity, I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. I've never stopped saying, I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. You could be anything in the world and I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. You could go to hell or the bottom of the ocean and I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. That's what the Father says. And it is only trust in this journey that allows us to embrace it. Because it is not earned, but awareness and embrace. It is surrender. In fact, I would like to suggest to you that every person right now who is an atheist walking this side, God says to them, I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. The only difference is they're not aware of it. they've ever prayed a prayer or even believe God exists, I'm always with you and everything I have is yours, is what he says to everyone. Everyone. Awareness is it. Who you are. So what story you will believe is set. The Bible is full of the clarifications about the good news. It clarifies the mystery of who He is. And it also clarifies the misery that we will live in if we continue to believe our story about ourselves. There's nothing more miserable than believing your own story. Now what really gets gets weird about us as human beings is when we get miserable because we're believing our own story and we keep believing it. We know we're miserable. We know it's not working. And then it's this weird masochism kind of thing where we're, we're feeling like then we're paying some attention. Let me be clear. God is never punitive. God never punishes. That's trouble ahead. God never punishes. God never is the vital nature of understanding of who we are. As Paul says, 
behind of our understanding of being right and to see what is the hope of our calling and the riches of the glory of our inheritance in the saints. This is the hope. Because of his love, he has always been with us. He has always been with us. And everything he has morning as we close, there is two realities you can live your faith. You can live your life in transactionalism. And when you get it right, you'll feel good. I did this really well. I don't know if you knew me like 25 years ago, but I was really good at this. I was really, I was a really, really successful Christian. And I knew how to, through some type of, of um, decision management, keep myself where I felt like I was upholding the morals and the standards of my faith. But God never intended you to manage your decisions as a lifestyle of relationship.
created that mess in the midst of our midst. And you are just as inclined to do it in the midst of our mess as you are in the midst of your best. When we get it right and when we get it wrong, you love both of those moments. So help us, Father, to trust you in that. Help us to to continue to surrender everything we have. And help us to be good stewards with what you surrender to us. Help us to get it right. Help us to, to get better and better. It's not hard. But we want to love you well. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you, everybody. And we'll see you on Thursday. So I need you to bring your marshmallows. And um, I apologize, we did not get to touch on this today. Um, and so please don't think that you've abandoned that. That is very important to us. Um, so we'll try and get to that next Sunday um, so that we can keep continuing to feed on that. Thank you. Everybody have a great day.